Well, good morning, church. How are we? Great. If you have your Bibles, would you open to 1 Samuel chapter 17? 1 Samuel 17. That may be a newer book to you. Uh, it is indeed not a new book. It's been there the whole time. Uh, but more than likely, there are certain books of the Bible that we go to more often than others. And a lot of times we don't find ourselves in uh, any of the history books uh, of the Bible unless we are doing our, our daily Bible reading plan through that way. And so feel, uh, if, if you need to, feel, feel no um, embarrassment. If you go to the front of the Bible, I use it all the time. Go to the table of contents, look up 1 Samuel, and then go to chapter 17. And that is where we're going to be today. Today is a day of great celebration. It is, it is Father's Day. It is a, a day that we are, are celebrating dads. We are celebrating fatherhood. We are celebrating uh, even more than, than earthly fathers. We are celebrating our heavenly father. Um, today also being a very special day, being June 19th, today is Juneteenth. Uh, it is the celebration of the official end to slavery here in the United States. Now, uh, understanding uh, what Juneteenth is, uh, it is um, back in, Jan get my math straight, January 1st, 1865, uh, President Abraham Lincoln gave the Emancipation Proclamation declaring all slaves in the United States as free men and free women. Um, but sadly, there were some places in the United States that did not tell their slaves of their freedom. And so two years later, on June 19th, 1865, um, we had a Union Army ride into Galveston, Texas and declare all slaves free. And it was on that day that celebration broke out through the South that all men and women who were slaved, enslaved in that moment were now seen as free and we celebrate that moment today. And so we are excited that we celebrate so much today. But as we get to the text, today, I cannot express to you how thankful I am to be back with you today. Guys, I, and if you were here last week, you know that I was supposed to be traveling to California last Sunday morning. Uh, we had the great honor of hearing uh, Roland Hall preach God's word to us. Wasn't that great, church? Yes. He did a fantastic job. But I wasn't supposed to be here because my flight was for 10 a.m. And then my flight was for 11, then it was for two, then it was for four the last time I saw you. But I finally got on my plane at 6 p.m., uh, which means I missed all of my connecting flights to get to Anaheim, but finally got there around midnight. Now let's just be clear. California is a cool place to visit, but it ain't a place I ever wanna live, okay? Uh, the first thing I saw when I got there was $7.50 gas. You can keep all that, okay? I am so thankful for where I live and the people that I get to live with. Um, but the reason I went to California this past week uh, and others in our church went is for the Southern Baptist Convention, which was held in Anaheim, California this past year. Um, some folks may wonder, what, what is the Southern Baptist Convention? What is it all about? Well, think of the Southern Baptist Convention as a really big and kind of long and mostly fun family reunion, okay? You get to spend time with a family you hadn't seen in a long time, and that's enjoyable. You get to meet new family members and realize you got a lot of stuff in common. You get to eat a lot, but you realize everything you eat ain't like mama made it. And there's the crazy aunts and uncles that show up at the family reunion. You can't tell if they're angry or if their face is just kind of stuck that way. You know, kind of like they bit into a lemon. They have an opinion about everything and they're going to tell you whether you ask them or not what their opinion is. They speak at like mm, four volume levels above everybody else. 
But at the end of the day, convention is good. It's the time that all Southern Baptist churches who elect to send delegates, and we call those messengers, to a central place, and, and we do business in the church. And if, if you're not Southern Baptist, or, or maybe you come from a different ecumenical background, one of the, the great things about being a Southern Baptist church is we are autonomous, meaning nobody from the outside will ever look into Broadmoor Baptist Church and tell us what to do and how to do it. Um, we, we own this building. We own this property. There is not a governing structure above us that owns this building or property that's outside of who we are, okay? So when we come together, it is, I believe, for the greater good and the glory of God. So here are some things, my takeaways from convention this year for those who were wondering, okay? I believe that convention made clear that we as Southern Baptists, of course, we always have done this, but we, we continue to solidify this in who we are as the fabric of how we live our life and do business in the church. We believe that God's holy word, the Bible, is holy, inspired, and errant, and it is for us to see and know him. That we as Baptists are committed to filling, uh, fulfilling the Great Commission. We are resolved to standing up for abuse victims and standing against abusers. We believe that we are better working together than we are on our own, and we believe that this world is broken, and the only hope for this world is Jesus Christ. Sure, we have some things that we need to get sorted out, but for the most part, we are a healthy denomination, and we have great and fruitful days ahead, Lord willing. So that's my update. You'll hear more about that in days to come, but let's get to the text today. 1 Samuel chapter 17, uh, and as we've typically done, we're going to kind of look at the high points of this text. But one last thing before we jump in, okay? Everything up until this point in this sermon series, the stories that shape our faith, have come from the Pentateuch, okay? That's the first five books of the Bible or the Torah, okay? So if, if you remember your Sunday school days from when you were a kid and the felt boards or, or the big posters on the wall, you know, you remember some of those? You remember that we would put the, the books of the Bible in categories and, and they would fall. Well, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch or the Torah, whatever you would like to call that, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those fall under the category of law. Okay, that was Moses writing to God's people as they're making their way from Egypt towards the promised land, letting them know the history of who they are, but more than, more than that, the law that God has trusted to them. That's why they're called the books of the law. But then we get into a next section, which is where we find ourselves today, and these are called the books of history. It's, it's the historical accounts of what happened for God's people, and the history is all pointing towards something bigger and grander that God is doing. So when we look at 1 Samuel 17, you are going to read an actual historical account. This is not allegory. This is not something made up to point to something else. This is a historical event that is, by God's grace and sovereign design, pointing us more clearly to something bigger that he has promised to us. And so, as we jump into 1 Samuel 17, you are going to notice something probably more than you've seen yet as we've done this sermon series. The amount of attention to detail is staggering as Samuel writes his, his chronicle. Because when we look at this word, the detail goes even, even as far as how many, how many loaves of bread and how many wheels of cheese and, and the weights of, of the garments that they are wearing. These things are going to be important, and I'm going to show you why in just a moment. But as we look to 
1 Samuel 17. This is a Father's Day message if there ever was one. Guys, this has everything in it. It's got, it's got the young underdog who nobody believed in, but he shows up on the stage and he comes in and he fights this, this incredible victory. And then at the end, there is this fight to the death and a guy gets his head chopped off. What more could you want on Father's Day? Okay. Have I piqued your interest? Wonderful. We have a whole lot to read today. Are you ready? 1 Samuel 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephasdema. And Saul, who was the king of Israel at the time, and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered, and they were encamped in the valley of Elah. And they drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with the valley in between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose weight, whose height was six cubits in a span. In verse 4, we're introduced to the bad guy, to, to, the, to the enemy, to the antagonist. Goliath of Gath. He's a, a champion. That means he's the best fighter in the entire army. And then we get his size. Here's where I'm telling you the attention to detail matters, okay? He is six cubits in a span in height. You're like, Josh, that ain't telling me nothing. I just know he's big. You don't realize how big this man is. Let me, let me explain it to you, okay? Let's do some math. Are you ready? Here we go. A cubit is 18 inches. A span is half a cubit. Okay, so we're going to put our thinking caps on, and we are going to put 6 times 18, which gives us 108 inches. Want to know what that is in feet? 108 divided by 12 gives you 9 feet. And then you add the span in, which is half a cubit. A cubit's 18 inches, which puts Goliath standing at 9 foot, 9 inches tall. Goliath was a monster. Check out what he was wearing. Look at verse 5. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. 5,000 shekels equals roughly 127 pounds. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron. 600 shekels, roughly 15 pounds. And his shield bearer went before him. Now, in this world, in, in, in the way that the Philistines would fight, there were two types of shields that they would carry, okay? There was magan, which is a small shield, think circular shield, that a warrior would wear on their arms, and they would move up and down at their own pleasure and delight. But then there's Sinai, and in that is a standing shield, and they would create those for the warrior that they would protect, and it would be from their feet to the top of their head, and it would usually be driven by someone else called a shield bearer. This is a Sinai. This is where Goliath, not only standing nine feet nine inches, not only is he wearing a coat of mail, think uh, impenetrable armor around him that's 127 pounds, but he's also covered from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, and then he has a walking shield in front of him that's also roughly 10 foot tall, 
So what the Israelites are seeing come towards them is a living armored tank that has a walking shield in front of them. Verse 8, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come and drawn up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not a servant of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. So Goliath is taunting Israel, asking them, why did you come to fight if you're not going to fight? Goliath gives a challenge, and this isn't typical for their war, but this is important for the details, okay? Typical warfare would be whoever has the most men standing at the end wins. Goliath goes for an all-or-nothing approach. Here is his rules of engagement, verse 9. And if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we, the Philistines, will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. So this is a winner-takes-all fight, the Philistines' best against Israel's best. Verse 10 and 11, and the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistines, and they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Uh, yeah, there's 10-foot-tall talking tank threatening to kill us. Wouldn't you be afraid as well? All right, so we're going to skip a little bit here, but I want you to have the, 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 the heart of this. Verses 12 through 15 introduces us to David. Going back a few chapters, David is a youth. Maybe, maybe a young teen, maybe, maybe mid-teens, but he is in Saul's service. Saul was, was dealing with some anxiety, and, and he wanted somebody who could play some beautiful music, and, and David was skilled with, with instruments, and so David would play something, and it would please Saul. So he came in, and David even worked his, up, his way up to be the armor-bearer for Saul, but not old enough to fight in the army, okay? So we're introduced to David who is the youngest of the eight of Jesse's sons, okay? So we go back to the human tank, verse 16. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. All right, let the gravity of this moment sink in. Every day, every morning, every night, for 40 days, Goliath would come out and he would mock, he would intimidate the Israelites, each time they were becoming more and more dismayed and greatly afraid. Again, skipping a little bit here, verses 17 through 23, Jesse tells David, that's, that's David's dad, to go to his brothers and to bring them food. And he was also supposed to go and bring the commander of the army's 10 wheels of cheese. Again, details matter here, and I'm going to tell you why in just a second. As David got close to do exactly what his dad told him to do. At this time, David's a shepherd boy watching a flock of sheep out by uh, a pasture. But David gets close to his brothers, gets close to the commander of the army, and he watched as the two sides were getting ready for battle. And as he was talking to his brothers, he heard for the first time Goliath's taunts to Israel. Verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man fled from him, and they were much afraid. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up to us? Surely he has come to defy Israel, and the king will enrich any man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. David said to the men who stood by him, 
What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and take away the reproach from Israel? You may be thinking, didn't he just address that? Evidently, David didn't hear that part. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. So Eliab, now this is David's oldest brother. When Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the man, and Eliab's anger was killed at David, or kindled against David, and he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left the sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil that is in your heart, for you have come down to see this battle. Now, this is strange, but a little bit telling, okay? If you go back to chapter 16, when Samuel was sent to anoint the next king, he came to Jesse's house, and everyone thought that the next king would be Eliab because he was tall, he was strong, he was smart, he was handsome, and he could fight. But the Lord told Samuel to pass on Eliab and instead to choose David. And then we have these famous words out of 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. All right, so Eliab was frustrated with David like some big brothers can be. Any big brothers in the house? All right. Why are you here? Don't you have something else to do? You just wanted to come and see us die. Can you just imagine that playing out? Verse 29, David said, what have I done now? Was it just not a word? And he turned away from him and toward another, and he spoke the same way, and the people answered him again as before. So, again, tell me, tell me about this Goliath. Tell me uh, what, what's going to happen. What do we need? Verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against the Philistine and fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. David's response. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him, and I struck him, delivering it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard, struck him, and killed him. All right, dads, don't miss the awesomeness of his response, okay? If the lion or bear got too close, what he just said is David grabbed it by the beard, punched it in the face, killing the lion or the bear. Now, I don't know what's a good resume for a Goliath killer, but I feel like that's got to be high up there, okay? He literally grabbed the lion and the bear by the beard, and he punched them in the face, killing them. Verse 36, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like none of them. You say, Josh, why does he keep using the, the descriptor uncircumcised? Circumcision was the, the sign of the covenant, meaning this man did not belong to God. He did not fight for God. He did not honor God, and David fought for God. Okay, so 
So we clearly, the Philistine is the enemy, and David is fighting for God's honor. That's why that word is being used over and over again. 37, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Well, go, and the Lord be with you. I can almost see it take place. All right, go. May the, may the Lord be with you, David. Then Saul clothed David in his armor, put his helmet of bronze on his head, and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped the sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook, and he put them in the shepherd's pouch, and his sling was uh, in his hand, and he had approached the Philistine. All right, so don't think here uh, these stones wouldn't be the size of like the small skipping rocks. These are the size of baseballs, okay? That, that's what a typical shepherd would have in their sling to fend off the said bears and the lions that he punched in the face, grabbing them by the beard. Wow. He walks up to Goliath. Here is Goliath's taunts. Verse 42, and the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, my dog, that you've come to me with sticks. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me. And I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beast of the field. Here's David's response. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beast of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword or spear, for the battle belongs to the Lord, and he will give you into our hands. Verse 48, here is the story that you know. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine, and David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. Now, there was no sword in the hand of David. So David runs over, stood over the Philistine, taking the sword out of the champion's sheath. And he killed him and cut off his head. But when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. So that the wounded Philistines fell along the way from Shrem to as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camps. And David took the head of the Philistines and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Now, 
That is the story of David and Goliath. And you say, Josh, why did you just take 20 minutes to read something we could have read on our own? Because more than likely, you knew how the story ended. But most of us in this room didn't understand the angst of what happens throughout the entirety of this account. Now, here's where the awesome power comes into play. It is in our understanding of this Bible account. You may be thinking, Josh, if I remember correctly, didn't they make a football movie out of this not too recently? Yeah, that was called Facing the Giants. Please do not get your biblical understanding from movies, okay? Generally, that movie teaches us this, that if you align yourself with God's priorities, then you will eventually get what you desire. That's not true. Max Lucado also wrote a book called Facing Your Giants, different than Facing the Giants. Taking five stones David picked up, uh, he made a five-point alliteration to help uh, you face big, bad, and scary things in your life. Again, that's not where we're getting our understanding of this text. We need to take our time and approach this and the rest of Scripture rightly. Too often, we want to put ourselves in the center of all of these stories, especially Bible stories. We want to see ourselves as the hero. And in this case, we like to see ourselves as David. Let me be as clear as I possibly can. You and I, we are not David. We are not any sort of giant slayer. I do believe we are well represented in this account, though. Do you know who we are in this? We are the terrified Israelites, terrified and dismayed. So what is this story about? This isn't a very good Happy Father's Day, Josh. This would have been better if you told me I was David and I could cut off somebody's head. The stories that shape our faith go deeper than anything we can imagine. So I'm glad you asked, what is this story about? Think back through the theme with me. You have two armies about to go to war, God's people and God's enemy. They have a champion, one who will stand and lead them in war, and by all appearances, seems unbeatable. He's bigger, stronger, more skilled at war than anyone else on the field. God's people have an army, but no real leader, no real champion. They have King Saul, but if you remember, it wasn't because God wanted them to have a king. God gave them judges, but they wanted to be like the rest of the world and beg God, demanded of God even, give us a king like all the other nations. So God gave them what they wanted to teach them a lesson. What's the lesson? A man-made king is no king at all. The battle lines are drawn and the stakes are high. Winner takes all, literally the soul of every man. The loser would become enslaved forever to this invading group. The enemy taunts them for 40 days and 40 nights, and then suddenly a young boy shows up, ready to kill Goliath. Not for money, not for fame, but because the enemy was speaking blasphemies against his God. Not fighting for himself, but for the glory and the honor of God and the welfare of God's people. Going back one chapter, you will see that David was anointed as the next king, as the true king of Israel. God chose him to lead, guide, and to protect the people. So when things looked at their worst, 
When the lines were finally being drawn after 40 days, they were going to fight the battle. God's people were surely going to lose because nothing could ever defeat this giant standing before them. The coming anointed king shows up and kills the unbeatable enemy leader. Don't miss the detail, the imagery, and the foreshadowing. If you go back in your Bible, I want you to do it. Go to 1 Samuel 17, verse 5. Look at what it says. Look at what he was dressed in. What was Goliath wearing? If you have the ESV, as I do, it says he was armed with a coat of mail. But if you have a different translation, maybe the NIV, the NASB, or the CSB, it reads this way. And he wore a coat of scale armor. Meaning that the way that he was armed was fully, but it looked like scales all across his body. What else is scaly? Serpent. Do you remember Genesis 3, verse 15? When the curses were handed down after the fall, it happened. You have Adam's curse, you have Eve's curse, and then you have the serpent's curse. Do you remember how the serpent was going to die? He will, what? Crush your head. How does Goliath die? A stone to the head. Then for good measure, David takes Goliath's sword and cuts off Goliath's head and holds it up for all to see. And church, here is where we come back into play. Our worship team's going to come back up and we're going to move into response time. But don't miss this. This is why you came today. This is the power of this message This is where we, remember those terrified Israelites? The one who for 40 days, we had nothing to do but fear. We couldn't stand against him and we knew it. We knew that if we walked out, we would be defeated in just a moment until there was somebody who came. Here's where it changes for them. If you go back to verse 51 of of 1 Samuel 17. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled And the men of Israel, that would be us in this storyline, the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. So the wounded Philistines fell on the way of Sherem to Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. When David secured the victory and he raised the head of the slain enemy, the people of God jumped to their feet with shouts of victory and took back the ground the enemy had taken from them. Church, we are not David, but we have one who is better than David who fights on our behalf. And in his victory, we take back what the enemy has stolen from us. That is the beauty of this narrative. This is called typology. These are types of something that's coming. Is David perfect? By no means is he perfect. It won't be long from this moment that he does atrocious things. But it's in this moment that he is pointing us to the one who is coming, who is the truer and better king than even David. And he will fight the enemy on our behalf, the enemy that we can't fight, the enemy that makes us terrified of all things in this life. He will come and destroy him and take off his head. And when we see the enemy defeated, the people of God rise up and they run. And they advance where the enemy was and they take back what the enemy had stolen, not just for themselves, 
but for the people of God around them. When we read this story, when we understand this account, it should move us with excitement and joy, not to try to be something we can't, not trying to be David because that's not our role to play, but we are those Israelites who are in one moment fearful and surely dead, and the next moment excited and full of life, not because of what we've done, but because of what someone did on our behalf. Church, you know where this is going. When Christ went to that cross, he defeated hell, death, and the grave. The story doesn't end by David defeating Goliath and everybody sitting on the sideline going, Woo, David, way to go! In that moment, they got up in shouts of joy and they ran. Church, far too often our response to what our king has done is, way to go, Jesus, we're so proud of you. Jesus did not save us to applaud him. Jesus saved us that we may be salt and light in this dark and decaying world. He saved us that we may make his known and set the captives free. There are still people who don't know the enemy is dead. They still believe that they are going to be destroyed if they step out of line with the one who holds them hostage. And it is our job, church, to go into all the world and to make disciples, to teach them all that we have been taught, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to trust that God is with us until the very end. That is our job. Church, this is a beautiful and powerful story of what has happened and what is yet to come. This story is pointing directly to Christ and the victory that he has secured and will soon draw to completion. We've been held captive by the terrifying enemy for far too long. With his taunts and his murderous threats, we have a king who has come to kill him and to crush his head, setting us free from the bondage of sin and the guilt and shame that is associated with that type of horror. But our freedom isn't for us to get up and live on the neutral ground of life. We are free to run in our king's victory, taking back all that the enemy has stolen from us. And when we return, notice that after they chased down the Philistines and after they killed the Philistines and they came back, they plundered their camps. And what, what that is in, implying is they took back what the Philistines had stolen and they come back together and guess who they viewed as their king. Now, this was going to cause some chaos and some tension as the days move forward because Saul is still technically the king. Remember the guy that they wanted, but God said, you don't want him. No, we want him. There's tension here. But there was no doubt in their minds who was God's anointed for it was King David. In the same way for us, church, that when we are released in the victory of our champion, of King Jesus, that we go into all the earth and we tell them about the good news of the gospel and we come back and we gather around the throne in heaven one day, there will be no doubt as the one who deserves all glory, all honor, and all praise. John saw it this way. 
you have your Bible, I want you to open to Revelation 19. This is how he views it. Revelation 19 verses 11 through 16 says this. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head were many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword to which he strikes down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh is a name that is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Church, there is no doubt in John's opinion who is the king. It is Jesus Christ, the conqueror. Jesus Christ, the one and true. He is Lord of lords and he is king of kings. There is no doubt who John believes him to be. The question is, who do you believe him to be? Because we can come today and you can hear a message like this and, and feel something, feel, feel some kind of way, feel either excited or, or something else. But, but that's, that's not the point. The point isn't to elicit a feeling in you. The point is to get you to the place in your life where you choose to do something with the king who sits on the throne before you. Because you do have a very real enemy. I have a very real enemy. His name is Satan. He is the great accuser. And although the victory was won on the cross, he's still around for a little while. The question isn't, do you believe that David and Goliath is a true story? It is. The question isn't, do you come to church a lot, or are you a part of a small group, or do you give a tithe? The question is, have you put your hope and trust in Jesus Christ as your king? because that is the only thing that matters. If you have done that, then you get to walk in the victory that your king has secured. But if you have not, there's something in you that thinks you can be like David, or he may be even better than David, where you can walk out and you can defeat that giant. No, you can't. No, you won't. And many of you have scars to prove it because you've tried. The only thing that can kill what is killing us is Jesus Christ. Will you put your hope and trust in him today? Would you pray with me? Father, I do thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the sufficiency of it. That in every text, every word that you have trusted to us points us back to you. It shows us that we are not enough. But more beautifully than that, it shows us that you are more than enough and that we are not to put our hope and trust in and of ourselves, but wholly and completely in you, Lord Jesus. For you are our conquering king. 
You are indeed the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Help us to respond rightly now. Jesus, we love you, and it's in your name that we pray, and we stand and respond. Church, would you stand with me?